0: Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you haven't yet, remember to follow this podcast on your podcatcher of choice, like Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have time, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find us and we read them for your feedback. You can also reach out to us on social at Our Body Politic. We are here for you, with you, and because of you. So keep letting us know what's on your mind. We'd also love for you to join in financially supporting the show if you are able. You can find out more at rbodypolitikcom slash donate. Thanks for listening. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. Fall is on the way and school is back in session. And this year, the summer heat and student loans are making big headlines. So sharpen those pencils because we're talking to experts about how these crises impact communities of color and what we can do about it. We turn first to Hawaii. President Biden landed there 13 days after the devastating fires on the island of Maui. After touring the damage, he joined community members at an event in the town of Lahaina.
1: Many of you have lost family. Not even sure where some are. I've had a similar experience. I was 29 years old and I got a phone call from my fire department saying they had to come home immediately. There'd been an accident. So I have a little bit of a sense of what it's like driving, wondering what in God's name is it going to be like when I get to the hospital. The only thing worse than losing
0: someone is not sure whether you've lost someone. More than 100 people were killed, and scores are still unaccounted for. Many of those people had very little warning, if any. Joining me now is Neil Dinesha, founding staff writer at Heatmap, a new media company focused on climate and energy. Welcome to Our Body Politic, Neil. Thanks for having me. So extreme weather just hitting the country and hitting the world. And in the United States, people, I think, are wrapping their brains around the fact that this is a fact, that extreme weather and extreme heat are going to be with us for a while. But let's talk about Hawaii, first of all. What are some of the climate events that contributed to these fires?
2: There are a combination of events. One of the events goes back a long way in Hawaii's history, which comes down to when native plants were replaced with invasive species when plantations were set up in that region. And these plants are not as resistant to fire as the native plants would have been. And historically, that hasn't been too much of an issue. But this year, it's been really hot and that heat has dried out plants and made them really ripe for ignition. And so that kind of contributed to what we're seeing today, but also what scientists call compounding events. And so we've also seen reports that winds from a nearby hurricane fanned the flames of these fires and made them travel more quickly across these grasses that were burning more quickly. And so when you put these events together, you sort of get what scientists have been warning of for a long time, which is multiple climate events coming together and creating a really pretty, nasty set of circumstances that have now led to the deadliest wildfires in recent American history.
0: When I started looking at Hawaii, one of the things I thought about was essentially colonialism and industrialization. And Hawaii was a sovereign kingdom, which the U.S. overthrew to take the land. And I think about All these different climates, including Baton Rouge, Louisiana, flooding, Mm -hmm. uh, was related to oil and energy providers digging through the wetlands. And industrialization and or colonialism seem to be these long-range undergirding factors of what's happening today. But it's also something that's kind of hard to talk about because it's like, well, this thing happened like 100 years ago and the check's coming due today, do you think we have the capacity to understand that?
2: Well, I think <laughs> I think we have the capacity to. I think the question is whether or not people are willing to engage with those questions. If you look around the country, the fingerprints of colonialism are evident throughout all kinds of climate disasters. I mean, in Hawaii, these plants were introduced on plantations that were set up by colonizers who wanted to... Bring livestock that weren't native to Hawaii to the region. And so, you know, these weren't things that people were doing before the white colonizers came. In Louisiana, like you mentioned, after that one decision that was made to ignore local knowledge of the indigenous Mm. people, is that we've seen all this construction happen to try and stave off the Mississippi River from flooding. We've still seen those levees break. We've seen things like Katrina happen and affect low-income communities and communities of color in particular. And so I think these conversations are becoming more accepted at some level because you see things like this happen. And I think especially when these disasters happen, you see us collectively kind of reckoning with what led to them. But I think like this conversation, as with so many other conversations, is so wrapped up in the politics of the country and the unwillingness of many people to reckon with that history. And so... Yes, I see it. I think we can do it. I think it also requires us to get uncomfortable in a way that I think people don't really necessarily like do. Yeah,
0: absolutely. You know, heat events are part of your work at Map. What are some of the touch points of how heat has affected American life?
2: It's affected American life in so many ways. And I think what I've been trying to do this summer is sort of keep an eye on how exactly it affects us. So one of the things we did is we launched something called a heat tracker, which is just doing something very simple. It's keeping track of the notable heat events from this summer. And that's been a really interesting exercise and kind of shocking, frankly. But another thing that we've been collectively doing is sort of trying to see how people around the country are trying to live with it. Mm. And so I recently wrote about how labor unions are starting to think about how to protect their workers from extreme heat. We saw, for example, earlier this year, just a couple of months ago, UPS drivers won a historic agreement when they threatened to strike. And what they got was air conditioning in their vans mm-hmm. because the heat has become the sort of galvanizing force for so many people. And we're also seeing it in the medical setting. Heat affects the human body in many ways. It has all kinds of health effects. And I recently talked to some doctors who had been taking it upon themselves to educate their patients about heat and about climate change's effects on their health. And so more and more, I think, we're seeing people really recognize heat not as a thing that like comes with the summer and lets you go to the beach, but as something that can actually harm you and forces us to rethink how we live our lives outside.
0: Yeah. What happens to our bodies when we overheat? And who's the most vulnerable?
2: Yeah. So the people who are the most vulnerable are either elderly or have pre-existing medical conditions. Kids also don't do fantastic in the heat, but they do better than elderly folks do. And this is just because what happens to our body is kind of gruesome. Our hearts start pumping faster. We start sweating more. And sweat is the way that our bodies release heat. And as the temperatures get higher, it's harder for our body to thermoregulate, especially as the temperatures outside start reaching the temperatures inside our bodies. And the more we sweat, the more we lose both water and salt. And so we get dehydrated and our body doesn't have the, the nutrients it needs to just function healthily. And so our hearts start trying to pump blood faster to try and get those nutrients to more parts of the body, but especially as we sweat more, as those nutrients get out, it just becomes harder and harder. And so because your heart's working faster, if you're elderly, that's a particular concern. But as you are exposed to the heat for longer, you're going to reach a point where you just kind of can't thermoregulate anymore. And you start experiencing signs of heat exhaustion yeah. or even heat stroke. And historically people have thought that the best solution was water. We're actually seeing more and more that the solution is a combination of water and salt mm. because we we need to replenish those sauce that we've lost.
0: I want to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. President Biden was in New Mexico speaking about the Inflation Reduction Act that passed last year. So let's hear a bit from that speech.
1: So we passed a significant climate legislation. Not only moves us away from fossil fuels to cleaner technologies like wind, but it means we're going to make things and new technology here in America.
0: So what are the climate provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act?
2: Oh, there's a lot. The Inflation Reduction Act or the IRA has been called essentially the biggest piece of climate legislation ever. And that's because it just provides so much money for so many decarbonizing technologies like solar panels and heat pumps and electric vehicles and also incentivizes clean energy jobs, especially union jobs. Biden's been beating the union drum for clean energy for quite a while. And I think taking together all of these incentives, whether they're at the home level or whether they're trying to make the grid greener or whether they're trying to bring jobs that you know, revolve around building clean energy technology, it's huge. It's a big shift in how the country spends its money. And that's really exciting to see.
0: And let's end on a note that certainly was news to me Uh and to many other people of young people and a case in Montana. So, more than a dozen young people in Montana sued their state for not addressing climate change in the case Held versus Montana. The young people won. They did. So, tell me about this case and whether or not it will have an impact.
2: Yeah, this is a really exciting case. And it was the first case subsequently to win of its kind. And the people I talked to are really excited about this case. And that's because the courts are an angle of approaching climate change that historically hasn't worked too well. There have been similar lawsuits in the past. They've all kind of been dismissed out of hand. But what this lawsuit did in Montana, it was in state-level court, not federal court, which is important because it was specifically a group of young activists who were suing the state over denying them their right to a clean and healthy environment that was guaranteed in the Montana Mm. Constitution. And this constitutional provision is something that's unique to Montana. There are other states that have similar provisions like New York and Pennsylvania. But because they were suing over this particular constitutional right, they had a really strong ground to stand on. And the judge agreed. And the judge said that, like, they were being denied of their constitutional right because the Montana legislature had passed some very openly climate unfriendly bills, Hmm. let's say, that didn't allow for energy projects to take their climate impact into mind. And so this lawsuit, it's a bit of a blueprint for people who might be thinking of doing something similar. Our Children's Trust, which is the nonprofit law firm that represented the youths who took this case to court in one, has filed lawsuits in all 50 states, including Hawaii, where a similar case was allowed to go forward. And now, now this win isn't the end of this case. This will almost certainly be appealed right. and it, they'll litigate their case in the Montana Supreme Court. And that's going to be a whole different level of fight than what they've had so far. But I think especially for kids who are too young to vote you know this provides like a really important method of uh, you know franchisement like they they have a voice here in a way that they don't have elsewhere and at the end of the day like it's these kids who are going to be feeling the effects of climate change the worst and so the fact that they finally have a way to maybe affect some change is, is really exciting
0: so life liberty the pursuit of happiness and climate health or something like that.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness all require a good climate. So.
0: Indeed. Well, Neil, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. This is great.
0: That was Neil Dinesha, founding staff writer at Heatmap. On November 19, 2020, the day Georgia confirmed Biden's presidential win, climate activist Danny Sigwald and a coalition of community activists, unions and newly elected members of Congress held a rally at the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in D.C. Here's Danny on that
1: day. Folks in my generation, millennials and Gen Z, just don't have a vision for the future that seems familiar or normal. So President-elect Biden, I'm asking you today, please support a Green New Deal and support young people and black people and brown people and indigenous people in this work because we're the ones who got you elected and we're the ones who are holding all of humanity in our hearts and not just our individual interests.
0: Danny Sigwald is a climate activist and managing director of the Green Leadership Trust, an organization working to quote "build an environment and conservation movement that wins." We're joined by her now to talk about her journey to climate justice and how she thinks President Biden's largest climate legislation measures up to what activists like her want for our future. Welcome Danny.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: There has been a lot of news out of Montana, out of yeah. Ecuador, But what is your story of how you connected to doing work on the survival of not just the human species, but many other
1: species, too? Yeah, absolutely. So I tell people that if they know anything about me, it should be that I'm from Washington, Mm D.C. Like, I grew up in D.C. in the 90s when it was the murder capital, when we were at the heights of the crack epidemic. And I grew up with a certain amount of class privilege as a mixed-race kid, um, living between worlds, right? So I very much saw the material differences between the way that my white classmates at private schools lived and the supports that they had in their lives and my neighbors and my family. So Mm. I grew up with a very, very clear lens into racial injustice, even though I didn't know what it meant at the time. And I started to build a career around it. Like racial justice is at the center of the work that I do and it always will be that manifests in so many different ways. So I worked in education for a while. I did housing work, I did anti-war work, I was in the Occupy movement, like always working to draw those lines and those connections between racial justice and trying to create a world that lives up to the promises (laughs) that this country has told us for so long. And in 2016, I was trying to figure out how to build a career, like a real career in the kind of nonprofit sector. Mm -hmm. And I was really, really lucky to find a woman of color led organization that was able to receive me and be open to the insights that I was able to bring as a Black woman activist.
0: So explain a little bit about how the work of climate justice fits into more traditional conservation-based environmental movement.
1: Yeah, so I recently learned from my friend Taiki James that the birding community, people who go look at birds, got its start because people were worried about the decrease in the number of birds that existed, like, I don't know, in the mid-19th century, maybe, because mm-hmm. white ladies needed the feathers for their fancy hats and they were worried that they would no longer have pretty feathers for their fancy hats. So the conservation movement has just really been rooted in preserving kind of an idyllic natural landscape for people with wealth, white folks, to be able to enjoy nature. And it treats us really as if we are not of the Earth, and the goal is to have as little impact as possible, but especially in Turtle Island and in the Americas, right? Like, we look at the historical documents of when colonizers came in, people would look at our landscapes, And note how lush they were and how abundant with food they were and how wonderful these natural landscapes were as if people hadn't been cultivating that for centuries or millennia. Climate movement has really been focused on things like reducing the energy emissions and how we do that within a political landscape of what already exists, thinking about things like carbon credits or tax credits to all of these massive companies that are polluting to incentivize not polluting. And it's just inherently flawed because it really misses the mark of the ways that we need to figure out to live in alignment with the natural world. It's not a question of how do we continue to maintain the status quo that has cause so much harm. It's a question of how are we shifting our frameworks, our mentalities, our thought processes, our ways of living to match the offerings of our planet and what it's able to give us.
0: So I was living in New York when Hurricane Sandy hit. And um, one thing that stuck with me out of many, many things was that Occupy Sandy was more effective than the Red Cross at delivering aid. What does mutual aid mean and why is it important in climate?
1: Yeah. Mutual aid means connection and sharing resources. That's it. Occupy Sandy was incredible and I've learned a lot from the folks who led a lot of that work about networks and how we build and sustain networks because it's a lot easier to move resources the bigger our networks are and the better connected we are. And I think mutual aid is also largely about helping folks understand that the systems and infrastructure that we have in place, whether it's FEMA and federal government, state government, these big international NGOs are ill-equipped and are failing us in these moments of crisis and that we deserve better and that people in their communities know what their people need the most and be empowered to take care of our people and not just depend on outsiders to do it.
0: In Montana, a group of young people sued the state and won, saying, You're promoting fossil fuel interest ahead of our interest. In Ecuador, citizens decided to leave oil in the ground, even though putatively it would have strengthened the country's economic health, but it would not have strengthened the overall health of the society. What do
1: victories like that mean to you, and is it enough? Those victories bring so much joy to my heart. It's so great to see people standing up and resisting the status quo of extracting fossil fuels from the earth, but also just extracting from our communities and poisoning ourselves in the future. And the is it enough question is is hard for me to begin to figure out how to answer because it has to start somewhere, right? No, it's obviously not enough, but think about all the young people who are like so energized and so excited about Montana.
0: Yeah. Now, what about the Inflation Reduction Act?
1: Yeah, I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act is huge, right? So there are parts about it that I'm like, yes, let's do this. This is great. There are other parts of the funding stream. So I'm just like, this is not a good idea. This makes me really nervous. Specifically, when I talk about that, I'm talking about carbon capture technology and carbon pipelines, which are very dangerous. And not proven technology, yet we're still investing billions of dollars into it. There are also possibilities with it, in that, if we're able to really cultivate it and figure out how to invest some of those resources into natural solutions, like Growing prairie grasses, reforestation, things of that nature could be very helpful. I really wish that there were more opportunities for lower income folks to be able to benefit from the IRA. A lot of the tax advantages are going to property owners, which is a problem. And I think that also it would be great if there was more funding or more energy going to community-owned utilities. So there's been a big push Mm. in New York and in Vermont recently around community-owned power, which means that folks in communities are able to make decisions about energy infrastructure and therefore will be less interested in extracting fossil fuels from the planet because renewables are actually a lot cheaper. And so there are a lot of ways that we can move that are more community-oriented in terms of our climate solutions, the IRA isn't necessarily doing that because it was kind of toning the line between the interests of the fossil fuel industry and all of these other massive corporations and the climate with not that much investment in individual people and community. Uh, I wish there had been more, but it's so much better than nothing. So, you know, just like that question you were asking before about, is it enough? It feels very much like the answer is no. And I find hope in the fact that it is almost certainly just the beginning. I love it. Danny Sigwald, climate activist,
0: author, and managing director of the Green Leadership Trust. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Frey. We turn next to another hot topic for the fall, student loan repayments with Karen Grigsby-Bates. Our Body Politic co host and founding member of NPR's Code Switch team. Let's listen.
3: Student loan debt looms over the heads of millions of Americans. Many hope to receive much needed debt relief when President Biden was elected into office. His administration came up with the Student Loan Forgiveness Program in 2022, which would have canceled $430 billion of collective debt. However, the Supreme Court struck that program down this summer. So, how will the country's most vulnerable borrowers, still recovering from the effects of a pandemic, be able to meet the demands of loan repayments? Joining me now is Persis Yu, Deputy Executive Director and Managing Counsel of the Student Borrower Protection Center. She's a nationally recognized expert on student loan law and has over a decade of hands-on experience representing student loan borrowers. Persis, welcome to the show.
4: Hello. Thank you so much for having me here.
3: It's our pleasure. So catch us up. What would the student loan forgiveness program have accomplished and why did the Supreme Court strike it down?
4: As you mentioned, federal student loan payments were paused during the pandemic. And so back in August of 2022, President Biden made an announcement that said that he was going to do two big things. One was to provide student loan cancellation of $10,000 for borrowers making less than $125,000 a year or families with $250,000. And if borrowers received a Pell Grant, they would get an additional $10,000 of relief added to that. The second thing that he was gonna do was then to implement a new repayment plan to lower payments so that those folks who had debt would have a more affordable option going forward. But thinking about the cancellation piece, the reason why this was so critical is because the data that exists in the student loan portfolio about previous disasters demonstrated that borrowers who have had their loans paused experience high levels of financial distress when those payments turn back on. We've seen this during the Hurricanes Harvey and Maria during previous wildfires, for example. These are other times when the payment system has been paused and they have resulted in spikes Mm -hmm. in default and delinquency rates when those payments resume. And those default and delinquency rates have very bad consequences for borrowers. It means that they could have their wages taken, their Social Security taken, their earned income tax credits taken. And so the cancellation program was intended to kind of ward off those bad consequences of what will happen when folks Mm -hmm. frankly can't afford to turn their payments back on.
3: So let's turn to your own story. You've been deeply involved in advocating for student loan borrowers, particularly for low-income borrowers for a while now. Walk us through your journey to student loan law and borrower advocacy, because I'm imagining you're not teaching a lot of that in law school.
4: No, not at all. When I left law school, I went to work for a legal services program in Western New York. I graduated from law school during the foreclosure crisis. And so there were a lot of consumer issues but a lot of focus was being put on, you know, keeping folks in their homes, rightfully so. But what wound up happening is that there were a lot of other consumer issues that were kind of coming to the surface We worked with folks who couldn't get housing because Mm -hmm. of problems with their credit reports. We worked with folks experiencing really abusive Mm -hmm. debt collection. And frankly, that's where I saw a lot of the student loan borrowers in the first place. Older borrowers who are on Social Security, retirement or disability, having those benefits taken from them. And so this is somewhat how I started the journey into working with folks who are experiencing these really devastating debt collection tactics and helping them navigate the system because they had disabilities that rose to the level of cancellation, but nobody told them. Or they went to a fraudulent school and they had the right to have their loans canceled through those programs, but again, nobody told them. Or they were very low income and they just needed help and nobody helped them walk through these, frankly, Byzantine systems that we have created for student loan borrowers where the programs are incredibly complicated and the companies that are being hired by the Department of Education to help folks get through the system have not been helping folks get into the programs that they need to really keep their loans in good standing, in affordable repayment plans, When I started, the student loan market hadn't crossed the $1 trillion mark. We know that we are racing towards $2 trillion now. The problems with student loans are just escalating and they are growing rapidly. In many ways, the federal student loan system has a lot of different programs that are meant to be protective of borrowers. For example, the disability discharge program that says that if you have a disability, that means that you can't participate in the workforce, that you will have your loans canceled. We have these income-driven payment plans that will allow you to peg your payment to your income. And then after a certain amount of time to ensure that you are not trapped in a lifetime of debt, the remainder will be canceled after a certain period, public service loan forgiveness again. But these programs take work to get into. They take paperwork, they take income documentation. And frankly, what we've seen over the last decade or more is that the servicers, who again have been hired by the Department of Education to walk borrowers through these programs, don't really have the incentives to do all that work. One of the problems that we run into is putting somebody in a forbearance, which stops somebody's payment. And so borrowers think, oh, this is great in the moment, I don't have to make payments. My servicer said, I don't have to make payments. But what they don't realize is during this time, interest is going to accrue. We're not going to get any closer to resolving the loan. And borrowers don't know what they Mm -hmm. don't know. And, you know, what I've seen over a decade of my career is that student loan borrowers are struggling financially. They are mostly middle-class, working-class folks just trying to get an education and get ahead. And they're struggling to make those monthly payments and do the other things that they need to do with their lives. One of the reasons why legal services providers are providing this service is because a lot of low-income folks don't know how to navigate the system, and they don't have the time to. Even simple problems take a long time to work their way through.
3: Let's pull back a little bit and talk about what people need to understand about the impact of student loan debt, like overall. Tell me first about individuals and families, and then about the nation, because those are concentric ripples, right?
4: Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's such an important point, right? a huge percentage of folks are holding this student loan debt. But of course, these folks don't live in little silos. They live in families. So what impacts the borrower is going to be impacting their families. There's been a lot of research done showing how student loan debt is impacting borrowers' ability to purchase a home, to save for retirement, mm. to start businesses. So this obviously has an impact on their kids, their partners and spouses. If they're taking care of older parents, they're ripple effects just from the individual level, ripple out pretty far, but also again, they live in communities, right? So they live in communities. And if you don't have the resources, you're not gonna be spending at your local businesses. One of the things that I focus a lot on in my career is the impact of taking the earned income tax credit from families to pay off defaulted student loans. And the earned income tax credit is one of the most successful anti-poverty programs we have in this country. It's a tax credit that is refundable, meaning that, you know, it doesn't just offset what you would have owed, that if you didn't owe anything, you still get that money back. And it's available to working low and middle-class families. And for a lot of folks, it is the largest infusion of cash they get throughout the year. And so a lot of the families that I've talked to about this program would use that money to repair their refrigerator, for example, to make repairs to their car. You know, those really essential one-time emergency things that folks kind of like put off because they don't have the month-to-month cash flow to pay for. So they often use their tax refund and their earned income tax credit to pay for those things. Some like really tragic stories that came my way is folks who were waiting to get medical expenses to take their kids to the dentist. For basic medical care, but that were like one time large expenses. And I think that has a big impact, especially on low income communities, right, where those funds are relied on broadly. Even more, we know students of color rely on loans more than their white peers do. We know that they take on more debt than their peers do. But after they leave school, It is harder to pay off those loans, right, because of disparities in wages. This starts with the racial wealth gap and the lack of familial wealth to pay for college to begin with. So we know that the loan problems really are concentrated more deeply in communities of color, in low-income communities, and also women. Women hold two-thirds of the student loan debt. And of course, this impacts Black women particularly. And so that, again, is going to have ripple effects within those communities as well.
3: The Supreme Court early this summer, in a one-two punch, struck down affirmative action. And then the day after that, they blocked the Biden-Harris administration's student loan forgiveness program. And in fact, I was on the show last month to talk about the court's ruling on affirmative action. Do you think these rulings relate to one another? And if they do, in what ways? And what do they tell us about who's most affected by those decisions?
4: Yeah, I think that these two decisions are really important to look at side by side, right? Because the first Mm -hmm. one on affirmative action really is talking about who can access an education and how do we contend with this historical legacy of racism that has kept folks out of an education and kept folks in places where they're not going to have the resources to have all the tools that their white peers have to get into school. So again, it really is about who has a right to be educated here and how are we going to ensure access. But student debt is also an issue of access because what student debt is, I mean, it literally is the cost of admission. And if you're poor, you're a person of color, and you have the audacity to try to get an education, you are going to have to take on this debt. And I think one of the pieces that folks don't really talk about is that debt is expensive. We know that Black students, for example, have to take on more debt than their white peers. And because it's more, it's going to be even more expensive, right? Because the interest is a percentage of how much you owe. So it's going to continue to grow. And if you can't pay it off right away, we know that means you're going to be paying for longer, which again, means more interest. And what this all accounts to is that education is more expensive for Black students, for women, right? And so getting an education is going to cost more, even if you have the opportunity to do so. The end of affirmative action could also result in more debt because when you look across the schools, it's not even, right? And so the opportunity to go to the schools with the larger endowments who have the resources to provide better financial aid, I think is a real thing. And I think starting from that place of understanding that the better resourced schools are going to be able to prevent folks from having and taking on more debt as well. And so I think that's a real issue that we're going to be seeing in the future.
3: In reaction to the Supreme Court's ruling on student loans, on July 14th, the Biden-Harris administration announced that they would provide $39 billion in debt relief to 804,000 qualified borrowers. But what makes a qualified borrower? How do you tell if you are one?
4: That's a really important question. So this announcement for the 804,000 folks actually comes from an announcement that came in April of 2022 when the Biden administration announced that they were going to do what they called the income journey payment account adjustment. And what that was was in recognition of the fact that many borrowers were not getting into the repayment plans that they needed. And income-driven repayment actually started in the 90s. It started in 1994, and it provided cancellation after 25 years, which meant that we should have been seeing people starting to have their loans canceled in 2019. But in 2021, me and some of my colleagues released a report based upon some data we were able to get from the Department of Education, only 32 borrowers had ever received cancellation through the income-driven payment program. There are more than 4 million borrowers who have been repayment more than 20 years and only 32 made it through. Wait,
3: 32?
4: 32, yes. In 2021, 32 borrowers were able to jump through all of those hoops in order to structure the loans to get the cancellation that income-driven payment provided. And so not just because of my report, but the reports of others and like the lawsuits against Navient and other student loan servicers, the administration announced that they were going to look back at everybody's records and recount the time to count it as an income-driven qualifying payment. And so the 804,000 borrowers are the people whose loans. When they recalculated their payments, found that they had been making payments on their loans, communicating with their servicers for 20 or 25 years and have not crossed that finish line. Everyone who has a loan that's owned by the Department of Education is having their accounts recounted this way. Just some folks haven't crossed that threshold yet. And so, you know, I expect that number to continue to grow and grow and grow. Importantly, there are folks who have loans held by commercial lenders that are still federal loans, and those folks will need to consolidate in order to take advantage of this program. But as of right now, the administration has said that those folks can consolidate their loans before the end of the year and still take advantage of this program as well.
3: If I understand correctly, You are actually a borrower of color. Talk to me about your personal experience with student loan debt.
4: Yeah, I have at this point completely paid off my loans. Actually, I have one more payment on my private loans left, but I had six figures of student loan debt. And actually, this is part of how I developed the knowledge to help student loan borrowers was because I was trying to figure out how to get my loans into income driven payment. I had resources and a law degree, which were helpful, though not perfect for navigating that system. But even at the point where I was considered a student loan expert and when I was at at my last job, worked on a legal treatise for student loan law. I had trouble navigating the system. I was in income during payment. And when it came time for me to submit my annual documents, they got lost (laughs) and my loans were put in a forbearance and you know i missed my deadline because they lost my paperwork and that happened to me multiple times when mm. i would call my servicer and say what's going on when is this going to happen they would say oh just wait just wait it'll happen don't worry and at one point in one of these times my loans actually were delinquent because i had submitted all of the paperwork they had my bank account information to withdraw the money but the processing was not happening at the right time And so my loans actually went into delinquent status. I am a student loan expert who has worked in public service for about 15 years, but it took me as a student loan expert more than 12 years to navigate through the 10-year public service loan forgiveness program. I had two years worth of problems. And so like, if I can't get through this system, how can anybody get through this system? This is why I say the information is necessary, but not sufficient to get yourself through this program. And most folks don't have that information to begin with.
3: Should people pursue a career in public service then to ensure debt forgiveness? Because for some careers, some positions that are considered public service, there is forgiveness, but not for everybody. Is this one way to get around
4: that? So, I mean, I think the public service loan forgiveness program has had a lot of problems historically. In 2017, when public service loan forgiveness first became available 98% of folks who applied were rejected. And it is just a systemic failure when 98% of people who think that they should qualify for a program are wrong. I think one of the biggest problems with the program, in my mind, is that it has a very limited view of how we classify public service. And so it's a great opportunity Mm -hmm. for folks who work for 501c3 nonprofit organizations or for governments. There's a lot of folks in our community who I think do public service who don't count. And so a lot of like home health care aides who work for private companies, unfortunately, weren't counted under the old rules. A lot of child care providers, social workers, right? There's a lot of folks who do public service, but because of the way that employment is structured, may not technically qualify. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that is very encouraging is another action that this administration has taken is the public service loan forgiveness waiver. And similar to the income during payment account adjustment, they have gone back and recounted a lot of folks' payments. And that has made a lot of folks eligible, right? The number of folks who had ever gotten it before Biden became president was in the low thousands. It is now over 600,000 folks who have made it across the finish line. So again, programs are getting improved. People are getting their loans canceled now. It is a vitally important program, and it provides a huge relief to a lot of folks.
3: So the definition of what public service is obviously needs to be expanded and improved upon.
4: Yes. The Department of Education is in the process of writing those regulations as well. And so we're hopeful that it will be expanded. So PERSIS.
3: After a three-year payment freeze, student loan payments are scheduled to resume in October 2023. You've led a team of attorneys to advocate on behalf of low-income student borrowers, student loan borrowers. We've asked our listeners to tell us about how student loan debt affects their quality of life. Here's one listener on what it's like to resume payments without any guaranteed relief.
2: As a Black trans borrower, it's shocking to me how much greed exists in this world and the way in which we were taught and conditioned to believe that going to college was somehow going to lead to some financial freedom. Find the papers to make this go away so that we can get on with our lives and actually do something, create things that actually create the type of world we want to live in.
3: Do you typically hear this from borrowers? And what other concerns have you heard from people?
4: Yeah, I think one of the things that this borrower spoke about in that education has been sold to students as their path to a future, that if folks don't get an education and they're not doing financially well, that's their fault, because why didn't they go get an education? Don't you know that an education is the ticket out of poverty? This is the ticket to the middle class. And then they come out on the other side with all of this debt. And it's like, well, that was your fault. And so I do think a lot of folks feel like there was a bait and switch. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I think, again, the greed statement that this borrower brings up is incredibly poignant. A lot of people have made a lot of money off of this system and a lot of things haven't gone right. We have a lot of predatory for-profit schools that have taken advantage of students. We have loan servicers who haven't provided the benefits that borrowers needed. And a lot of these folks have made a lot of money and not a lot of them have been made to pay. And -hmm. at the end of the day, a lot of times it's the borrowers who left holding the bag here.
3: Even with all these struggles, it seems that the Biden administration is trying to address borrowers' needs. The same day the Supreme Court struck down the forgiveness program, the White House announced another income-driven plan, the saving on a valuable education or save plan, which is meant to replace or enhance its revised pay-as-you-earn or repay plan. But do these plans work, especially when it comes to the economic hardship low-income communities often face?
4: Yeah, I think it's so important to have a more affordable plan. I think that this plan does a lot of things structurally well. First of all, lowering the payment amounts for many borrowers, though not all borrowers. And I think that's an important Mm -hmm. distinction that there are some folks who are left out of this plan. But lowering the payments is important. The other thing that it does is it does for borrowers who have very low incomes and whose payments won't cover their interest, It waives any unpaid interest. And this was a huge problem with the existing plans is that they allow these balances to balloon and balloon and balloon. And then because folks don't have the resources to get through the whole 20 years, they wind up with this mountain of debt that is just unaffordable and unsustainable. And it is lowering the number of years towards the repayment for a number of folks who took on less debt. And so I think it's doing some very important things. What needs to accompany that, though, is, of course, the ability for borrowers to trust their servicers and for servicers to do their jobs to get borrowers into these plans. And I think when we start repayment, we're going to see a lot of stress on that student loan servicing system. And it's going to be a huge test to see if it is actually able to help folks get through all of the hoops that they need to in order to get into these plans and have them work for them. And I'm very worried, to be perfectly honest.
3: Finally, I'm wondering, what's the true solution to address student loan debt then? I mean, we've heard a lot about the problems, a lot about the attempt to lessen or relieve the onus that is placed on student borrowers, especially low-income student borrowers and people of color. So what does true relief look like?
4: Yeah, I think we have to take an and approach to all of these problems, right? I've talked to a lot of folks about student debt cancellation and they say, well, that doesn't solve the real problem with the cost of education that we have this growing reliance on debt. We have rising tuition costs, rising costs of living for students in general, but a decrease in support for a lot of students. And so absolutely, we have to tackle those issues and we have to figure out a way for folks to be able to get an education without going deep into debt. And I think we have to address the fact that we have 40 million people who have debt and they have real problems that are also not going to be solved by fixing tuition costs for the next generation, though I think most people really want that too. And so we have to do both of these things simultaneously.
3: A lot of people who are listening may themselves be borrowers, and I'm wondering if there's anything that borrowers themselves can do on a personal level, or is this like totally systemic and it's beyond?
4: Well, you know, it is systemic. And so I think, first of all, just acknowledging that it is not your fault. I think a lot of people feel so much shame about their student loans. And so much shame about not getting into the right Mm -hmm. repayment plan and not being able to navigate this incredibly difficult situation the most effectively or the most efficiently. Like I said, information is necessary, but not enough. And so we have a website called cancelmystudentdebt.org, and we provide resources for folks on how to get into the different cancellation programs. And I think it is important for folks to know that there is more cancellation than just what Biden announced last year or what he's proposing in the future, that there are existing programs and folks might qualify for it now. And so we have resources for folks to go and look into whether or not those programs would help them as well. We're also updating, as we learn it, information about the SAVE program as well, so that people can best figure out how to navigate their own financial lives.
3: Well, you've got your work cut out for you for the next decade. We're grateful that you were here with us. Persis Yu is Deputy Executive Director and Managing Counsel at the Student Borrower Protection Center. Thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me here.
0: And that was co-host Karen Grigsby-Bates. For more information on how to sign up for the SAVE program, check us out on Instagram at rbodypolitic. And to wrap us up, here's more of what you had to
4: say about student loans. My debt is about $62,000. And I believe when payment resumes, I may have a monthly payment of about $600 a month. And what that means for me is that less money to go towards rent, less money to go towards a down payment for a home, less money to go towards savings. We also live in an economy where our jobs aren't able to keep up with the rate of inflation. The government
2: seemed fine without us paying that back for what, two, three years? And I can absorb that hit, thankfully, but I know that is not reality for a lot of people.
0: I feel like my total loan
4: amount is lower than most folks and what I have in total between undergrad and graduate school is $35,000, which is still more than
0: I am willing to pay. Student loan debt adds a sense of dread to my quality of life. Even though I had a wonderful undergraduate experience, I don't see that it was worth this money. I've definitely thought about it. limiting my kids' choices to schools that I can afford without taking out any loans and without them taking out any loans. I do think that student loan debt
2: should be canceled. Businesses were getting their PPP loans forgiven. I don't see why somebody who contributes to the economy, who
3: is actively trying to better themselves with higher education, should be penalized for wanting to be a stand-up citizen.
1: I took on three to four jobs at a time, paid off my grad school loan. I want to pay it off as soon as I could because I know no job is permanent. At any time, anything can happen that can put you in even more like financial despair.
0: I'm not happy that debt relief hasn't been granted. I'm wondering if I'll ever see it in my lifetime, but if it doesn't, I'm not pressed. I graduated with not that much debt compared to my peers. I got a lot of scholarships, so I would advise future generations to do the same. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on social media at Our Body Politic. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms and Rococo Punch. I'm host and executive producer for Rai Chidea. Nina Spensley and Shanta Covington are also executive producers. Emily J. Daly is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booking producer. Our producer is Monica Morales-Garcia. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. Nicole Pasalka and Monica Morales Garcia are our fact checkers. This episode was produced by Monica Morales Garcia and Natina Bean. It was engineered by Mike Garth and Carter Martin. This program is produced with support from the Luce Foundation, Open Society Foundation. Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising-Simons Foundation, the BME Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, the Pop Culture Collaborative, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.